I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, singer and songwriter Stu Nunnery to the show. Welcome, Stu. Good morning. And um, I'm guessing it's warmer in California than it is on the East Coast today. Yes, it has been very cold. It's been in the 30s, but then when we get the wind, it's like <laughs> 22 degrees. And so oh, I'm just bundled up today. <laughs> but I'm delighted to be with you and was excited to get your call a couple of weeks ago. Yes, you know, it was it was interesting because I've grown up with all of the Disney sing-along tapes. And the ones that I loved the most were the theme park ones. So the Disneyland Fun, yes. the Beach Party at Walt Disney World, Flick's Musical Adventure. Those are the ones I loved. And it's so interesting. The Disneyland Fun is one that so many people had on their VHS tape. Um, and it, it goes viral on YouTube all the time. There's millions of hits for the for the actual tape. And a lot of people gravitate to the one song that they perform on Main Street, which is, I'm walking right down the middle of Main Street. <laughs> you got it exactly right. And I must tell you that I did not know that the song was being played at the theme parks until early 90s, 1990s, a friend of mine, I, I was running a um, uh, theatrical troupe mm -hmm. and I had written a, written a show and uh, the troupe was working together. And one of the actors came up to me and said, I didn't know that you wrote Main Street USA. And I said, how do you know? And she says, my son sings it all the time because he sings to the Disneyland fun sing-along tape. Well, that was the first I knew that it was on the sing-along tape. And I'll give you a little bit of the history of how the song came to be, but also how I learned that it was eventually being used. Mm -hmm. But that was the first time I found out about it when a mother with a child was singing to the sing-along tape told me that it existed. And I was trying to find more information about when the song officially made its debut in the park because the tape was 1990. And you said you had written the song back in 1978. Yes. But the song was not publicly available till 1985, which is very unusual. So what's the story there? Well, here's, here's, here's the story. In 1978, I was writing radio and television commercials in New York City. And I was working for one of several jingle houses that I had worked for down there. And they got the commission in 1978 to write some songs for Disneyland's 25th anniversary in 1980. And uh, I, was given the, I was given the commission along with several other writers and wrote two songs, actually. I wrote one song called uh, The Happiest Family of All and then Main Street USA. And I was told it was going to be performed. Uh, Disney bought it in 1978 and that it was going to be part of the 25th anniversary celebration. Um, we're waiting, 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 waiting. Nothing happens in 1980. In 1985, I am in Memphis, Tennessee, having emergency eye surgery. And my dear Uncle Stewart called me in my hospital room to tell me that he had just seen Marie Osmond and a cast of thousands singing my song on national television. So that was the first that I had ever heard it was finally released. And you may have more information, but uh, for me, 85 was the year that the song showed its face for the first time. And, th and that's what I have, too. I have that it started in the theme parks around 1985 in Disneyland. Um, but I don't have any, I couldn't find any other additional information. I know I, I hear it all the time when I go to Walt Disney World because the trolley show incorporates the song and, and yes. the trolley song from Meet Me in St. Louis and all that great material. It just works so well. But yeah, my introduction, as I told you off air, was Disneyland fun sing-along tape. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's, it's um, and when did the when did the tape come out first? 1990. 1990. 1990. Mm-hmm. OK, well, I didn't know about it until 1992. Wow. And um, and the Dapper Dans also sing it walking down Main Street, the uh, yes. close harmony group, the barbershop quartet. And I um, didn't know that either just playing at the theme parks until I saw the tape. And then I was very curious because um, at the time Disney purchased my song, they uh, had a contract with the Jingle House that I was working with, but not with me. And I assumed that I was going to see royalties for my portion of the song. What I did see is advertising for Euro Disney and Japan Disney back in the I don't know, maybe mid 80s to 90. And I would receive residuals for the airplay of the song on on, uh, television and radio as the advertisements for Euro Disney and Japan Disney. When I heard that the song was being played at the theme parks, I went to ASCAP, my uh, performing rights society, and said, I'm not seeing any royalties for performances. ASCAP told me that they didn't have any record of that. And um, I wrote to Disney and I said, I'm not seeing any royalties come through for uh, the theme parks. And Disney basically uh, played ignorant that they knew who I was, but that they didn't owe me any money. And then in addition, they put it on the DVD and I never saw any residuals for that either. What I'm told, um, and this hasn't been looked into very deeply because I've I've asked a lawyer and others to do it too, but they tell me once Disney owns something, they own everything. It's possible that the contract that the Jingle House I worked with signed a contract with the advertising agency and that Disney considered my my production, my writing, my composition as a work for hire. Now, Um, On that Disney sing-along tape that you see is also music by Harold Arlen and some other very, very well-known songwriters. And I dare say I don't expect that they're not receiving anything for those videos, but I never saw anything for it as well. And it's 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 not a big bone of contention, but it was there was confusion back then. 1978. I don't remember exactly. I tried to get the contracts from the Jingle House and, and uh, they're, they're not accessible. So um, I'm happy that the song is out there. I'm happy that it's there. I got residuals for advertising themes, but never saw anything for the theme park. And what happened, ASCAP told me that only recently, and this is, I'm going back five years, 10 years, only recently did they start charting when a song was used at a theme park because it didn't fit into the typical publishing uh, format. It wasn't a song. It wasn't played on television. Another singer didn't do it. It was played as background music or as performance music at the theme parks. And frankly, with with publishing royalties um, for a writer, you get performances. So if there is a performance of your song somewhere, you should be getting some royalties for that. But I have not. And uh, I'm not here to complain about that on the show. I'm just going to tell you that's kind of how it laid out. The song got out there. It was used. It's still being used. I have a cousin in Florida who goes to Disneyland all the time down there. Disney World says it's still being sung. And I'm very happy about that. I will tell you that I have written other songs, as you know, and I've had international recordings. Nothing has got the um, response or the continued playing 
um, to match Main Street USA. So I'm happy about that. I was speaking to two guests last week, and we were just discussing the fact that some of these some of these compositions for the theme parks have never been like officially released. And Correct. it's just interesting because the sing-along tapes, you know, I, I said, you know, with Disney Plus, that would be amazing if they could put those sing-along tapes that we all grew to love on there and then we could show them to our own children. They could update them, you know, with the ones that have the film um, yes. versions from the theme, you know, not, 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 not the theme parks, but the animated versions. Um, but I would wonder what would that do? Like, how would that work with royalties in in particular? So I wonder if they're trying to figure something out like that. I know that I, because I did my album, You'll Find Me on Main Street, um, I have to give royalties back to Disney. And only one of the songs on my album is not owned by Disney. Um, it's Two Brothers. That was by Irving Gordon. So mm-hmm. I have to do a separate thing for that. Uh, almost every quarter so it's interesting to see how like that plays out because i had nothing i knew nothing about it and it's actually harder a little bit harder than you think it is to make sure that you know you're getting the rights properly if you want to sell a song so it's just very interesting to see how that kind of played out but you know know, the, the, the the big issue is that disney did not write sign a contract with me Mm-hmm. It uh, it went through an advertising agency. The advertising agency then found the Jingle House, and the Jingle House hired me. Mm-hmm. So I was I was paid well for the songs, um, but as I had been a recording artist at that time as well, I was very interested in the other royalties because the song never showed up for five years between 80 and 85, I assumed it was never going to be used. Was this something that was presented to you as this is going to be a song featured for Disney for Main Street USA? Or did they just say, here is a song and a topic. Can you make something? The assignment was this. The advertising agency through Disney was looking for some new songs that it could use to celebrate Disney's Disneyland's 25th anniversary. So it was not intended to be a jingle. And it was songs. What, what can we write? So I was writing a song. And um, I, I mentioned I wrote two of them. One was called The Happiest Family of All. And then I did Main Street USA. And uh, which, which I will talk a little bit about to how the song was written and what the inspirations were and everything. But it was a song. And... Um, uh, it, it was a magical. It was a magical experience I had actually. If I don't, you don't mind me telling you right now. But um, I woke up very early one morning, soon after I was given the assignment, and um, I was thinking of uh, Disneyland, and I was thinking of Randy Newman. And Randy Newman, of course, has written countless songs for Disney and gone on finally to win an Academy Award after not winning an Academy Award for 19 straight times. But I was thinking of Randy Newman, and I wanted to do something a little edgy. I know who Disney is. And I've been there many, many times myself. I've always loved Disney. My niece worked at Disney World down in Florida. And my nephew and I used to go there all the time when I went to see him in Florida. But I wanted Randy Newman. I want a little edge to it. And um, the opening the opening notes of the song, if you know, it's just kind of a little do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And I'm walking right down the middle of Main Street, USA, came out. And I said, okay, now how would Randy Newman sing that? And immediately lyrics started coming in and I wrote the song within 20 minutes. It had four, four or five verses. There's an extra verse that they didn't use, which I'm happy to share today. And um, it was magic. And there it was. And I walked in the next day to, to tell my uh, boss, I have a song. And he goes, 
where did that come from? And I said, yeah, it, it came right out of the ether and everything was written in 20 minutes. And, um, but originally it was, again, Randy Newman, I'm thinking something edgy. It didn't turn out to be edgy, but it was, it was very interesting to me. And, and the other thing was that um, I was stuck with right down the middle because I knew that there was a song that Bing Crosby had sung. Bing Crosby used to sponsor a golf tournament in California. And he wrote a song that I thought was right down, was right down the middle, but it wasn't. He wrote a song called Straight Down the Middle. And he was talking about playing golf and hitting his golf ball straight down the middle. And that song was the theme song of the golf tournament in California that he had sponsored. Now, I'm talking many years ago. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that's a, a ripoff, but it doesn't matter. I get into it. Then the other thing about the song is that um, I used the characters, Donald, Mickey, and Goofy, to sing part of the lyrics. And the piano solo that Mickey does halfway through the song is exactly as it was written. But instead of playing the melody in his right hand, I was playing the melody, but Goofy was barking the melody to that song. And none of that needed to be used. I just put it in there to impress Disney, I suppose. And um, so the, the song was, was a magical thing that happened very quickly. And a lot of it had to do with, in fact, with, with my feelings about the whole experience, my knowledge of Disney. I think Disney is in our DNA. So there it was, my musical talent, the assignment came together, Randy Newman, Bing Crosby, bingo. We have a song that's lasted for 42 years now. So uh, that's the story. 20 minutes. Oh my gosh, dude. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but it's interesting because some of the most famous songs that you hear about, like maybe Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You and Jolene were written in the same day within, you know, 20 minutes too. It's so interesting to hear how some of the most famous songs, even with the most complicated melodies or, or just, they're just so nuanced. They last forever. <laughs> it's just so it's, interesting it's to see true. that. It's very true. And um, um, I have one song that I wrote. I did an album in 1973 of my own music. And one of the songs, um, Lady, It's Time to Go, became the number one recording in Brazil in 1974. And um, for 20 years, it was used as the theme song for one of Brazil's top soap operas. I didn't know about it for many, many years. And by then I had been out of the business because of my hearing, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, in 2014, 40 years later, Latin America's largest magazine publisher found me and wanted to do a story about my music in Brazil. And here it was recorded 40 years previously, and there was still tremendous interest um, in, in the song and it's still being played. And wow. uh, I have a lot of Brazilian friends. And actually, I was hoping to go down there this year to perform. But not only is Brazil um, dealing with COVID, it's, it's got a lot of political upheaval as well. And so we, uh, we had decided not to go down there. But um, Maybe so for 2024. Possibly, possibly. I, I think there's, loved there's it. lots of possibilities. And I, I think uh, let's take care of COVID first and see yes. what we got. But um, it's but something it's, to it's look very forward true about to. songs and <laughs> you can be inspired and everything comes at once. The writer, um, the Latin, the Brazilian writer that wrote about the song talked about the period of time in which my song was down there. Romance was in, of course, you're in Brazil. Romance is in all the time. Mm -hmm. But it became a dance tune 
for a lot of folks. And uh, they would have afternoon Sunday dances outdoor on the outdoors on the piazza or in towns. And it, it just stuck. And they, they talked about the, the top songs back then and how many of them were romantic ballads. And the other thing about the 70s is that American and British musicians and singers were very popular in Brazil at the time. So I fit in that category as well. And there were Brazilian artists who would change their names to American names and um, record some of the songs that English speaking songs that were down there. In addition, many of the fans that loved that song were making their own videos long before anybody else was making videos. They made videos. And what they would do is they would use my recording and put up photographs and, and try to tell the story of the song in their photographs or sometimes some more photographs than videos. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was really wonderful. One guy actually did a voiceover. And as I sang in English, he repeated the line in Portuguese. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting things that happen with music around the world. But my song was just fit perfectly at that moment. I didn't know it for many years, but it did. And that's another thing that happens, too. You can write something. It's a hit in some other country. Uh, you know, you, you may remember Paul Anka. Paul Anka was a um, uh, pop singer, and, and um, he was very big before the Beatles. He wrote My Way for Frank Sinatra and uh, the Tonight theme on The Tonight Show. And um, when the Beatles came in, his career, he felt, was over. But he always had a very loyal following in the south of France. So this is what I'm hoping will happen to me in Brazil. He retired to the south of France and continued to perform in clubs in the south of France, made a ton of money, enjoyed his life because that was where his music was popular. So when knowing that Brazil was still interested in my music, it's been my thought, too, that I'd love to get down there and perform for my fans who I've never performed for. And uh, that might create a whole nother um, part of my life that, um, that happened because I wrote that particular song. Now, th there are other songs that I've written as well that are popular down there, but nothing like Lady, It's Time to Go. Isn't it interesting how music connects us, even even in another country? It's pretty un unbelievable how that works. Yes. And part of your story incorporates the loss of your hearing in the late 70s, early 80s. And I can't even imagine, as somebody who's a, mus a musician myself, I can't even imagine something like that happening. It's like almost the equivalent of how Julie Andrews lost her voice. You know what I mean? So... Can you tell a little bit about that story and, and what you've been doing since then? Sure. In 1973, I mentioned I recorded a, my first and only album. The record company went out of business about a year later. I was performing um, in some clubs and um, I got a call in New York to meet with John Hammond, very famous impresario at Columbia Records through um, a friend. And he signed me to Epic Records at the time in 1976 or 77. We recorded half an album and Epic went disco and wanted to know if I would become a disco singer. <laughs> of course, I said, look at me first of all, and then listen to me in my voice. I said, I'm not a disco singer. So we um, are a writer. And so we parted company. At that point, I got a call to start doing jingles in town from a friend who owned a jingle house. In 1978, I was with another Jingle House. I wrote Main Street, USA. And during a recording session, uh, my left ear 
started sounding like a, um, a speaker on a stereo system that you were pulling the wires out of. And I was getting tinnitus in my ears and I was getting distortion in the left ear. And um, I went to see a doctor and he said, I, I can't diagnose it, but you're having some hearing problems. Within 24 hours, I was my, the hearing in my left ear is gone. Now, when you're in a recording studio, as you know, you wear a headset. And if you're singing, in one ear, you're hearing the music coming in that you're going to sing to. And in the other ear, you're hearing your voice. Well, now I only had one ear. So now I was trying to listen to the music and listen to my voice at the same time. Over the next year and a half, I continued to work singing jingles, but it was getting worse. Finally, 1981, I was painting my apartment and I bent over to get some paint and my right ear blew out exactly the same way to my left ear blew out. So now I'm, I'm down two ears and I've got terrible noises in the head, which I still have. And I have pitch distortion. I could barely hear anything. I go to a doctor and he said, you've suffered something called sudden sensory neural, bilateral sensory neural hearing loss, which is a, um, the term that we use for most hearing loss. It's, uh, they don't know what caused it or what happens and they don't know how to cure it. So um, I got my first hearing aid, but I was gone from the music business. It ended then, that day. There was no way I could sing. There was no way I could sing in key. There was no way I could listen to music and, and be in pitch. For the next, um, I decided to become, I decided, a lot of people lose their hearing. They get their first hearing aid and they go back to work. I lost my hearing, got my first hearing aid, and I couldn't go back to work. The work that I did was finished. Most people, after they lose their hearing, they're more interested in trying to function. I was interested in functioning the way I used to. That was not going to happen, but that's what I wanted to do. So I, I, uh, I went to work for a natural food company. I was on the road for seven years selling and, and talking about natural foods and health and nutrition and taking a lot of vitamins and trying to get my hearing stabilized, which I did. But it was not never enough to get music again. And over the next 20 years, I did a lot of different jobs. I ran a nonprofit working with small farmers. I sold washing machines. I worked in convenience stores, anything I could do to work up until 2002. 2002, I went to work in uh, New England and, and ran a nonprofit organization that would help small farms become profitable. I was also married at the time, and um, I couldn't play the piano and sing in key. And uh, my wife at the time, who later died in 2010 of cancer, didn't want me to play and sing at the same time. It was really irritating. And I agreed with her. It was irritating. I didn't even think of it. In 2010, she passed away. And I received a letter from a gentleman who had grown up in South Africa. He said, I've been a fan of your music since I was five. And I heard about what happened to you, and I'd love to meet you. So he came up to meet me in New England, and um, he said, I'd, I'd do anything to help you get back to making music again. And I didn't think of it. But he really got me thinking that it didn't matter that I couldn't sing in key anymore. I could keep working at it. 2012, I took the original tapes that I had from my first album, and I went to New York City, and I put them on uh, CD. I figured at very least I could have a CD that I could copy and uh, sell. And I could have more people 
hear about my music through the CD. Fine. In 2009, I got my first digital hearing aid and started to hear things that I hadn't heard with the analog hearing aid. In 2013, I began working with an auditory trainer. The auditory trainer was focused on, uh, focused me on doing listening exercises to try to get me my speech comprehension improved. And he did. And as my speech comprehension improved simply by listening, my pitch was beginning to improve. In 2014, I ran a Kickstarter campaign that would allow me to continue working with my auditory trainer and get some new equipment. And hopefully the goal was to record two new songs again that I could release to the world. 2014. 2015, I decided I was ready to perform. I did two concerts and they were abysmal failures. I played, I still play very well, but I sang completely off key. And people wondered what I was trying to do. Um, I had friends that were encouraging me, but I was in very bad shape. 2016, I'm still working with the nonprofit organization. My pitch is improving a little bit. 2017, I'm invited to go to St. Louis, Missouri, where one of my songs on my first album has been a rock classic for 40 years. And I did my first concert in 35 years. And it went pretty well. At the end of 2017, um, I was feeling confident about things. And my, oh, I'm sorry, in 2015, I got my second digital hearing aid, which gave me programs and uh, options that would allow me to hear a flat response when I hit a, a musical note. The, when you get a hearing aid, your speech program compresses and changes um, the frequencies so that you can hear speech, but it's not good for music. The hearing aid companies discovered that if they opened up the channel and allowed you to hear exactly what your residual hearing allows you to hear, you might be in better shape with music. And that's exactly what happened. Suddenly I'm hearing myself as exactly I sound and I'm singing on key. 2015, 16, 17. By the end of 2017, um, I'm not doing so well. I'm back singing again, but there's no music business anymore. I'm alone living in New England and um, I'm not a depressive person. I'm more an anxious person, but I was very down. There was no industry for me to go back to. I was getting older and didn't know what to happen. And at that moment, the girl of my dreams walked into my life as I went on to match. She was on match. We discovered each other. I played hard to get for a whole month. We finally got together at Christmas time and we've been together ever since. She is a um, retired NICU nurse, uh, neonatal um, infant care nurse and is a soprano in a uh, woman's acapella chorus. And we're meant for each other. And here at our house, I've been able to record again on software. And during the coronavirus, uh, I started something called Stu's Corona Cafe. And I was recording myself here at home and broadcasting it on Facebook. And in 2018, as per the goal of my Kickstarter campaign in 2014, I was in the studio and I recorded two new songs. They weren't great, but they were good and they were good enough and they were, um, uh, they were released. And finally, the last part of this is that 
my sweetheart, Lori, and I have written a screenplay about my life with music and hearing loss and our coming together and our relationship. And we're now getting it out to filmmakers, hopefully to make it into a film. But um, miracles happen sometimes, and sometimes you can resolve things. Our screenplay is aptly called Good Enough, uh, in part because I have learned that uh, singing perfect, being in perfect pitch is a rare thing. But when it's good enough, sometimes that's just perfect. And I'll, yep. and I'll put Stu's information in the show notes for our listeners to be able to contact you and the link to this video you were talking about. Um, but before sure. we end, did you want to tell us that that line that never was used in the original song? Let's see. It's the kind of a place that you'll never forget. I may get a little older, but then you can bet I'm coming right down the middle of Main Street, USA. So it's, a, it's, it's part of Aww. a verse that uh, that never got used. And I always think, well, that's Disney. They didn't want to say anything about getting old. <laughs> well, many of us are. And that's one of the reasons we yes. come back to the parks, because it's like that nostalgic viewpoint of we can sure. all be young, young at heart. <laughs> that's right. Well, I have three Disney-themed questions I end with each of my guests. So sure. we'll start with the Donald question of the Fab Three. As a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Well, it, it, it's it's cliche to say um, when you wish upon a star, but uh, that had everything for me. It had uh, heart. Um, it was a great melody. Um, there are so many Disney movies. That it's I haven't seen them in a while, <laughs> so <it'd be laughs> tough for me to get it. Uh, when you wish upon a star, um, yeah, give me give me a minute. I'll come back to that. But what's your next question? So the goofy question is: What Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Oh, it would be Donald <laughs> <laughs> or Mickey. I'm not sure, or maybe Goofy. I I, I really don't know. Very and our true. and our Mickey question: If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment. What immediately comes to mind? Again, if you gave me this and said, come back in a half an hour, I could tell you exactly what I think. I think I'm walking right down the middle of Main Street, USA, might be the finest Disney song ever written. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I totally no, listen, agree. <laughs> Harold, Harold, Harold Arlen wrote so many wonderful things. So did uh, there were so many. Also, Randy Newman wrote so many wonderful mo uh, songs for Disney. Um, but I haven't seen Disney movies in such a period, long period of time. I don't remember those things. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give it some thought and send it to you in an email. Sounds good. I then, love it. Then but you I, can I, say, I will... okay, here's what he, he would have said if he could have remembered, <laughs> but he's getting old. No, don't say that. Remember, you're always young at heart, okay? Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm, I can't use that lyric. That's right. <laughs> Stu, this was so much fun. I really, I would love to see you in concert at some point when COVID kind of calms down. I think that's what we're really missing in the world is being able to connect with people and also share the love of performance and music. So, Well, I'm going to send you some of my music, uh, contemporary music, things that I did right in my living room, and you're welcome to share that with any time you want. I would love to. That would be great. I, I, I really, it has been an honor to speak to somebody who I've sang, sung that song so many times and heard it, and I just <laughs> love it. Even watching it again yesterday and this morning, I was like, oh gosh, like this is, and it always gets me excited because sometimes I, sometimes I put it on my iPod before I go to 
Walt Disney World, and it just gets me even more excited to walk down Main Street. So, well, I'm 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 flattered, and I'm excited to have been here today. And let me pass along a compliment too. I I, I do interviews on the phone, and with my hearing loss. I have Bluetooth in my right ear and you have a wonderfully clear voice. Um, I wanted to mention one, two other things that uh, sure. most people don't understand what hearing loss is. They assume it's volume. It's not all hell breaks loose when you lose your hearing and there's no, no two hearing losses that are the same. One in six people in the world have a hearing loss, one in three over 65. And uh, it, it's quite an extraordinary thing when you lose your hearing as a musician. Getting it back, you really aren't getting your hearing back. You're getting your ability to hear music as well as you can. And um, But it's, uh, there it is. Uh, oh, I, this is what I was going to say. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences recently updated their standards for qualifications for the Oscars. And if you are trying to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar from now on, you have to demonstrate diversity and accessibility in your, in your film for not only um, ethnic groups, uh, black and white, but uh, women, people with disabilities, and people with hearing loss, and those who are deaf. So the idea mm. that uh, deaf and, and those with hearing loss now are invited to be more visible in, uh, in the arts is really a wonderful thing. And our screenplay is about a deaf musician who does anything to try to get his music back and who falls in love with the woman of his dreams he didn't know he was looking for. But it's really a story about uh, a deaf musician who's trying to make his way back. And um, so we're hoping that a filmmaker soon comes along and is interested in the story because the timing is right. Absolutely. And uh, we'll see what happens. But um, I agree. But, uh, I'll be first me, in line <laughs> to I see agree. it. I agree. <laughs> this has been wonderful. And I thank you so much for finding me and for reaching out to me. I, I'm happy to uh, talk with you anytime. Good morning,